The Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Ensemble Advice is not a licensed financial services provider and does not provide financial services. Before making investment decisions, you should obtain financial advice from a qualified financial advisor. I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Ensemble Advice South Africa. Today in the studio in person, I might add, I have with me Glenda Labuskagni. Glenda is the MD at Brokerspace, a relatively new business who creates a platform to connect buyers and sellers in the financial services space. So I'm looking forward to a very interesting discussion. It might be something that a lot of people think, oh, I know exactly what a buyer is going to look for when I sell my business. Or if you're a seller, I know exactly what um, type of business I'm looking at buying. But just before this discussion, there's quite a few things that already came out. Glenda, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. This is a, a, a topic that I think is really important because for a lot of financial planners, this might be your single biggest asset that you build up in your life, right? So you work 30, maybe 40 years building a financial planning practice and then you Google who you might sell the business <laughs> to or you spend 20 minutes thinking, hey, what am I going to do one day? Talk to me a little bit about why people leave this so late, is it just such a complex thing to tackle? I think it's a very personal thing, right? So you've been building this baby for 30, 40, even just 20 years, and it's your baby, especially when you're talking to owners. It's um, it's not something that you can just part with. And just thinking about the industry, not only is your business a personal thing, but the relationships that you've built up with your clients is very personal. It's hard to let go of any relationship, right? Um, even more so when you've been that kind of dependable person that they can come to for something as important as their financial well-being. And um, I think it's just not something that you think about. And it's unfortunate because it should be, right? Um, if you don't have a succession plan in place and you don't have any fallback, especially when you're a solo advisor, um, it 
places your practice, your employees, your clients in a significant risk position. But it's something that happens and no one can say why. It's just not something that everyone thinks about every day. And I guess you don't want to think about the worst scenario a lot of times. Yeah, it's almost thinking about that ultimate demise or mm. or your exit or life after this, you know, new transition that you're that you're moving into. We tend to get stuck in the busyness of running a business. Yeah. And all of a sudden, oh, it's my retirement date. Or you might not even be forced into retirement. What's the most common reason people are selling? Uh retirement. Um, but then also immigration. Um, there's a lot of people moving overseas. Um, and although, I mean, the world's a lot smaller now with your online meetings and, and so forth, your systems that makes it easier, um, there is something to say about a personal in-person meeting as well. And a lot of advisors prefer to, to you know, focus on those personal interactions. So a lot of them feel like, Immigrate when they immigrate, or if they immigrate, it won't be an option to to remain the advisors of their clients. So that is a big thing. I mean, for obvious reasons, right? Um, and then retirement as well. Okay, and ill health does that play a role where people are almost forced to move out of their business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's unfortunate because that does place your practice in a in a bit of a worst position um, financially with these types of transactions, but I mean it is a it is also a reason. But we we don't see that often. Okay. So you're more dealing with the planned succession and the transition. What I hear a lot is people saying, "Oh, I've had younger planners in my business, and they left after five years, seven years, ten years." And I've had enough. I don't want to train more younger advisors that'll just leave. I want to rather sell. Do you see a lot of the businesses trying to do internal succession first and then consider selling? Or are a lot of people just saying, hey, I ultimately just want to sell my solo practice? Um, getting a, a younger advisor in, um, and yes, we do see it a lot, especially with uh, families, right? The son, the son, son, the son, son, son. Um, that happens often, and then the advisors have that long-term commitment, so no problems there. Um, but so you'll let the family down if you yes. decide to change <laughs> um, But in terms of your younger, non-family type of advisors that come in, it is a, I don't want to call it a risk because they might have a change of heart or mind, um, but a lot of advisors do feel like it's just easier to do what you do and just sell off the business as it is. Someone else can take over, take care. Um, you know, training a younger advisor takes a lot of time, effort, and so forth. And by the time these advisors think about it, it's too late to go into a five-year plan. Um, so, yes, obviously it happens, but I haven't seen it happening that much yeah that internal succession is is a challenge i read a stat last week that in the u.s they expect people to on average have 13 different employers during their life wow to expect someone to join you at the age of 20 and, and take over the business maybe 20 30 years later i think that's a tall order 
At the same time, we spoke about trying to sell a business that has systems, a business, a business or a firm that's not reliant on the owner. Talk to me a little bit about the risks of you know, building a business that's too reliant on the main advisor, on the owner. What are the things that, that you see are, are going wrong when it's so tied to that one specific person, the main advisor or the, or the principal, as we like to call them? Um, some people prefer to withhold that information from their employees um, just to kind of eliminate that stress factor. Because okay. when, when the business gets purchased by another business, there's obviously a massive change um, waiting for these employees and they don't know what type of culture they're moving into. Are they going to be appointed on a contract basis for one year, three years? Are they going to be appointed on a permanent basis and have that security? What's the financial situation going to look like? My personal opinion is be open. Mm. Be open with your employees. Help them understand what to expect. But then also make that part of your due diligence process when you you choose a a buyer. Make sure that their cultural fit, etc., is is on par with what you feel you want to provide your employees with. Because at the end of the day, your clients have a very close relationship with your employees as well, and they they play a very important part in making sure that the transition is, is, um, is better and runs more smoothly. And especially if this, the structure of the deal is deferred payments where – the, the transition actually influences your payout at the end of the day. Those people are super important. And the communication to the client, so assuming that your staff members don't know, I guess it would be near impossible to communicate it with your, your clients to say, hey, we're selling, yet please don't tell anyone that works here. Very important to educate your clients, even even if you're not in that space where you're going to move move out right now. Having that open conversation with your clients, um, you know, just discussing it with them, making them feel comfortable that you will, no matter what, look after their interests as well when you pick a buyer or someone that will take over in your stead um, is extremely important but it doesn't happen because I, I think I think advisors are, are scared of their clients feeling that there's going to be instability and they'd rather move over to another advisor while they still can while they're a bit younger establish that relationship perhaps a, a company with more advisors that um, will provide them with that stability in-house um so I suppose there's various reasons for not doing it, but in my personal opinion, it's something that you should do earlier rather than later. I think it comes back to this over-communicating and saying, this is something that we've been thinking about. And I want to almost guarantee that if you're older than 60, your clients are probably wondering who's going to take over. Definitely. You know, if I'm retiring, my advisor is 60, they're probably not going to be there when you most need them some point in the future. And then in any case, perhaps going to just move away because they don't know. They just don't know. And they've got these questions, but they feel a little bit awkward and on, uh, you know, asking it. <laughs> oh, are you saying from a client perspective, yes. they'd rather look to find someone else? If they don't know, no. right, they know that the advisor's 70 years old. 
are you going to ask your advisor what's going to happen? A lot of them don't, um, I would imagine. And they would just move on naturally because they think that there is this kind of something coming up um, potentially. So communicating with your clients can very much eliminate that natural move away. If I can, I think that's spot on. I mean, we we often talk about this statistic of eighty percent of widows find a new advisor after their husband has passed away. Right, eighty oh. percent. Before we started, a lot of our conversation was around the structuring of these deals and the retention of clients, and this kind of ties into what we were talking about now. Yet, it doesn't feel like a lot of sellers are thinking through how do they manage the retention of clients. Talk us through the terms of these deals. What do they typically look like? Like, Is it, a, is it dependent on retention of clients? Is it only looking at income? Um, what does the typical deal terms look like, if there even is such a thing as a typical deal? I wish there was, but each and every company has their own unique way of compensating the advisor and then also um, accounting for the risk in taking over not a tangible asset, but an asset in brackets mm-hmm. that can that has a personality that has an opinion and can walk away at any stage. Typically, what we see to to uh, is where you've got a, a certain amount upfront. So the valuation, let's say your value is five million, um, for example, they would pay you fifty percent upfront to incentivize you for that. Um, but then over time, so perhaps over two years, pay you the rest in um, deferred payments based on a reevaluation. So that's where they then account for clients that perhaps moved away. Um, and that's also where they try and incentivize you as the advisor that's leaving to assist as far as possible with the success- successful transition. Other deals very much depends on clients staying. So we say that they they fund these transactions with the actual book's income. So they would pay you a portion of the commission on a monthly basis for five years, for example. Um, That obviously has a lot of tax implications. So a lot of sellers don't prefer that model, Um, but it could it could lead to you getting more out of the deal because there's less risk for the buyer. We have also seen offers up front, nothing else afterwards. They do happen, but they are significantly lower. Um, some people do a percentage up front with the rest after eight months, no you know, reevaluation needed. It really does depend on where the, um, or rather why the seller is selling, okay? If they want to do an immediate sell, they're going to get a lot less and the period will be a lot different. If Im- they Immediate being they're not going to be involved in this transfer? Be, okay. They're not going to be involved. It might be due to health reasons. They want to immigrate immediately. You're just right? buying a just, list of names. And- yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that has a significant influence on the price um, obviously, um, death, mm. unfortunately, and then retirement, which is better because it can happen over time unless the person is 
approaching 90, which wouldn't be ideal. <laughs> Might make it a bit more tricky. Uh, the, before the session, we spoke about uh, there was an FBI annual report last year that uh, noted two people in their 90s. So <laughs> someone out there is still practicing and, and there might be a wealth of wisdom. So I don't want to discount their value. But if you still own a practice as a solo advisor, maybe in a sole proprietor, which a lot of practices still have, how difficult is it selling a sole proprietorship or, or what are the options when you're running a CC or a sole prop? Um, what should people be thinking about if they intend to sell in the future? In normal cases, the client is contracted with the, the business itself. Okay, so with the CC, the FSP and so forth. If there's a movement from one FSP to another, those clients would need to be recontracted. And a lot of your suppliers or your product providers do require that in any case. To make it easier um, on both the buyer and the seller is to kind of try and um, extend that period so they have more time to do it. So they're paying you, they're paying you income in this process? Yes, they pay you a salary. For example, okay. Okay, they pay you a salary or a part of the commission um, in the first year or six okay. months and so forth to help facilitate this transition of seeing each client and so forth. Mm -hmm. Most of them focus on their top 20% of clients and the rest, they just kind of the cipher <laughs> through the, the admin staff. But buying a CC is tricky because if you're an entity, you can't be a shareholder. There's no such thing as shareholders in a CC. So before you actually buy the business, you would need to transfer or, or um, move convert. it from a CC, mm -hmm. convert, yes, convert it from a CC to a PTY. That shouldn't have any influence on the contract with your clients because it's with you as the business. And according to the the phase act or the FSP, changing your business structure has no influence on the contracts with your clients. Mm -hmm. Okay. You need to though be conscious about um, the providers. Okay. So there are certain providers that makes it extremely difficult to transfer clients even over time to a new FSP. Are those typically um, life insurance companies or what are the type of businesses that Life insurance companies, yeah. but with um, with your re your your investment structures okay. as well. So your combined okay. product, those old okay. school structured products. Um, if you, some of them just outright stop the income that you earn from them, and it's not going to be in their favor to get those clients on their books if they can't mm. kind of move them over. And you don't want to place your clients in a yeah. position where it's really not good for their financial well-being to mm -hmm. to move over. Mm -hmm. But then, I mean, what is the worth of that company? Just continuously earning the commission as it is yeah. makes it tricky. Oh, Glenda, the discussions that that I've had with financial planners coming to a point where they're thinking of, you know, either their career ending or getting to a point where they just don't feel like this anymore. Price has been one element, right? I need to get some value for this. But it seems like most people just want to make sure that their clients are looked after in a manner that was maybe similar to what they did. What are what are sellers what are the questions sellers aren't asking these buyers about what's happening to their clients? Like are we, are we spending enough time doing the due diligence on 
what does my clients look like five years from now, six years from now? It's important to understand the philosophy that your buyers is using. Um, you don't need to be involved with the detail on each of your clients, but unless you, if you don't understand what their general values are, how they, um, you know, charge these clients, um, and how do they approach the longevity of these clients' mm -hmm. products? Um, if that doesn't match what you've mm -hmm. been doing. Your clients are mm. most likely going to move to someone else mm. because it's not something that they're used to. Mm. It might be to their benefit and a lot of them might feel, you know, cool, I like this change. But you need to understand what their philosophy is. Um, you need to understand their culture, how they approach clients. Is it a cold email every year, once a year? Is that their review system? Do they contact these clients? Do they email them happy birthday? You know, you need to find a company that is not completely in line with your values, but at least, you know, has the same mm -hmm. approach um, to provide your clients with at least some form of stability over time. I think the dilemma comes in now you find a business that's similar to yours, they might not have the capital to buy your business, they might not have the people to service your business. Right, because if you think about the two of <laughs> two of the same, like typically, I think it's smaller businesses, so maybe a small team, maybe small team servicing them. How are these new businesses financing the deals? I'm not talking about the big corporates that have got a big paycheck; they can just write out a check and say, "There you go." How are they financing these deals for maybe a three or four man business or woman business that says? I want to bring this person in the fold. How are they affording to do this? Most of them don't have sufficient capital on hand to just pay cash. So a lot of them depend on the income that's earned from from the new business. They pay off the, the um, purchase price with that income. But because you're going into three to five PE range, right, it becomes a long game. So you're going to have to earn that income for a couple of years before it starts making sense, before you start seeing the advantages of those um, purchases. A lot of them do apply for loans with banks. Unfortunately, banks just don't see, you know, they don't see this as something that they can find because it's quite significant risk. They, I haven't personally seen a bank approve one of these transactions. You can also find um, uh, venture capitalists. Um, we we work with with someone as well. Obviously, they, the the inter interest rates kind of uh, reflects the risk that they that they take. But at, well, the that is a risk, right? Because it's exactly. it's probably not that risky if you think about the fact that it's generating the income yet. They charge you, in my mind, exorbitant um, costs to finance this. Yeah, and, but also they don't look at the intricacies of this practice, how mm. successful this mm. transition should, in theory, be. Mm. They look at the cold, hard facts. Financials, what's the income going to be? Ibada, <laughs> there we go, and there's the hint. Yeah, so it's tricky. I mean, every single business wants to grow, and acquiring 
a client base or a firm is the easiest and quickest way to grow. I mean, you can cross-sell and so forth. That's going to kind of grow over time. But buying a book is the quickest way to grow. But the unfortunate bit is if you don't have the funding, you can't. A lot of your smaller companies would then go into equity deals. So they would sell a portion of their business to fund buying other businesses. And that's, uh, you know, that's a high price to pay for growth. Yeah, this is a, this is such a tricky space. Because when we started this conversation, we spoke about the emotional connection. You have, you know, your baby. And even with Wealth Up, feels like my baby. So to sell that, I would probably expect to receive a much higher price than what a buyer would want to pay. Within broker space, like, how do you manage just the differences in opinions? Like, how do you, how do you navigate that? Or do you step back and say, oh, you guys need to need to strong arm each other into finding the right uh, the right price. I do think it's important for us to take a back seat when it comes to that, just to to remain kind of unbiased. But it is important for us to manage the expectations of especially the sellers. You cannot expect that you would get the same PE or multiple for a uh, short-term practice as you would for an investment practice. Two completely different product lines. The stickiness is completely different. You will not get the same. You will not get a PE of more than five if you want to exit immediately. Um, you won't even get four probably. Um, so there's a lot of things that need to be considered, soft kind of measurements that affect these prices so significantly and I don't want to say that it's our role, but it is something that we feel quite passionate about is to try and, um, you know, get the seller to be more realistic about okay. this deal. Um, at the end of the day, it is their decision. I mean, it's like a property sale, okay? Um, I can advise you on what I think it should be. But at the end of the day, you're going to put a certain price on property 24, for example. Okay. So it's difficult. It's extremely difficult. Yes. Managing those expectations, yeah. I think, is the, is the key. And what you're saying is that we bring in some additional data, right, from the revenue analytics. What other pieces of information do they look at? Like, do they look at what software you use, what your people do? What are the things that people might be surprised to think that they would they would look at? Um, I don't know if they'll be surprised, um, but things that they obviously look at is your uh, revenue, right? So everyone will look at how your, your income is made up. So how much of your revenue comes from certain providers, how much of your revenue is recurring based. And just on that, these differences of opinion, is the ACI renewal recurring? Or is it not? Am I going to include that in the value that I see this practice um, is worth or am I not? So just on that small portion, there's already a, a big debate. Just to pause there, what do you mean by ACI for people listening? On life cover, 
Mm-hmm. Okay, you get first year, you can set, you get second year, but each year when that premium increase happens, okay. you get what we call an ACI renewal fee, okay. um, and that is in theory a recurring payment, although it happens once a year unless you you decided on on an as and when option. Um, so a lot of people view it as um, a recurring income. But because of life products, the structure, it might not be transferable post-sale, so they don't feel like it's worth So you typically discount that amount? Yeah, yeah. The same with initial fees, like that you only earn once? I would assume that they probably discount that quite aggressively as well. Okay, so so, there depends on the product um, line. So initial fees on investments you won't get again. If you're talking about uh, initial fees on life, so your mm-hmm. first year and second year, you're not going to get that same amount mm-hmm. again. But if you're valuing a business based on the past 12 months income and you received first year, the probability is there that you're going okay. to receive second year and ACI renewal okay. in the following year. Okay. So what some people would do is they try and include the future, uh, future potential earnings okay. um of those products at a much lower rate because I mean mm. it, it, it's just a sure. future valuation. Um, so some of them do that, and some just discount for it completely. They don't include right. that. The other stuff that that um, is looked at from a revenue perspective is the concentration of your clients as well as AUM, of course. Um, distribution of age brackets and so forth. What's the average age of your clients? If it's at ninety, then I'm sorry, but it's, it's not It's not going to be the best buy. What's the product distribution? How much do you earn on average from your, from a client? Um, and that would obviously be significantly impacted by the product line. So medical aid is capped and, you know. And then other stuff is your systems. So what CRM system do you use? What financial planning tools do you use? How do you communicate with your clients? Are they used to signing their docs via quickly sign or they're used to go seeing you in person and having a physical document in front of them so that would impact your revenue multiple someone would most likely it wouldn't have a direct impact but it would be something to consider from the buyer's perspective Mm. because again if you need to go and sit in front of each client and that is not the way you do business it's Mm. not a turnkey Mm. okay and it will be something that they consider it might not have a direct impact on that multiple but it will be that's a very small sure. thing it was just you know an example but that's a great example because we often think hey we want to make our lives easier we want to make our client lives even we don't think hey i'm gonna probably be able to sell my business at a higher multiple it's almost a a way of thinking that just you know prompts you to do those kind of things even though they might not be the the best in the short term in today's age, I mean, it's completely almost non-negotiable to, to at least a certain extent, automate your practice because there's so mm-hmm. many tools out there. There's tools that would probably fit every single kind of need. You just need to look for one. And and yes, it can. It, it most definitely has an impact on the multiple, but it's a very, uh, you know, how it impacts that multiple is is incredibly difficult. So um, when you compare the buying of a book to a property, it's not 
at all the same thing. But what would be a turnkey for one person, maybe a house with solar, with a solar system, wouldn't be a turnkey for another person. So for example, if you're using at work and the buyer is using Elite Wealth as an example, the transition might be influenced, but it, and they might discount that. Um, whereas if they're also using at work, it's going to be a super easy plugin and they might, um, you know, that will be in your favor then mm. in terms of the valuation. This is interesting because I'm, I'm wondering, do people go back and say, okay, I have a sense of what potential buyers would look like. Let me go and fix some of these things and come back and go through another round. And at the same time, do people end up hiding things? Do they end up hiding compliance risk? Because that's something that is critical in these sale agreements, yet something that is very difficult to know if you don't know where to look. I would like to think that no one hides anything, but I suppose it is it is possible. Compliance is a massive thing. PI cover, have you had any claims in the past couple of years? How many, how significant... Um, what was the influence? All of that is stuff to look at, apart from your financials and your automation and so forth. It's an incredibly, you know, involved process to determine whether the fit mm -hmm. is right. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just, you know, handshake, have a drink, let's do this anymore. I, that might, I, I think that's how <laughs> it used to work in the I'll past, to be quite honest. This. Um, but um, it's a lot more involved. And one of the questions we actually quite often get asked from, from sellers is why? Why is all of this necessary? It's a lot of work. And the fact is that this is not info that you shouldn't have at hand. You should have all of the revenue type of info. Um, you should have your financials sort it out. You should be compliant. You should have those certificates. You should have cover in place. You should have all of this stuff in place. So it shouldn't be that difficult for you to, to provide it. But for some, it is a bit more difficult. And I guess, yeah, I guess that, that places the buyer in a, in a position of uncertainty. No, it doesn't sound like it would necessarily take the deal off the table. No. You would just reduce the price that you can expect. And at the same time, you know, legislation is actually a great thing for business owners because it forces you to have these things in place, which makes it so that your clients are serviced better and so that you can get a fair price. Um, we, we love complaining about legislation, but sometimes <laughs> it, uh, it really saves you from ruining probably the biggest asset that that you own and that's why i say it shouldn't be there it shouldn't be something that you need to go and spend weeks on and and so forth it should be there it should be a natural thing you should have it somewhere in your computer it should be there right um so so asking the question why i don't know how to answer that other other than you know, if it should be stuff that you have. Glinda, is it worthwhile for someone to go through this exercise, even if they're not planning on selling? Like just to say, hey, what is a benchmark value for my business right now? Absolutely. So if you are 40 years old, okay, and part of your plan is 
you know, growth strategies. Some people just have, I want to grow my business by 20% on a revenue basis. Perfectly fine. But you need to consider at an early stage what the impact of every small decision is that you make in that business. Be a business owner. Don't just be a financial planner. And I think that quite often happens that it's not the highest priority to look at your business holistically instead of just looking at, you know, the income that I'm going to earn. Um, I think that is something that that is lacking. Um, so absolutely understanding what buyers look at can help you create a lot more value um, in the long run. So if you know now that this is my current value and just based on revenue, this is what it can grow on. That's a very easy calculation. But then what is the influence of all of the stuff that I got on that valuation and how can I improve it? It's vital. I believe it should be part of every single person's, you know, just annual planning at least. It seems like the compliance world, and LaRue, if you're listening to this, the compliance world almost needs to marry with valuations and you know, the work that Brokerspace is doing to help people in the future unlock more value, but also create a more sustainable, just a sustainable business for our clients. Because ultimately, that's why we're doing this, right? So that our clients are still looked after. Absolutely. Absolutely. But like you said at the start, your business is probably the largest asset that you've got. Why would you look at this asset differently than improving your home with new fixtures, etc.? Why is it any different? You need to improve this as well as an asset for future sales. Um, and yes, it does have a quite an influence on, I think, how your clients see your business as well. Again, stability is an important thing. Glinda, as we're coming to the end of this conversation, for people that want to engage with you and maybe consider, you know, either buying a practice or listing as a as a potential seller, what's the best way to reach out and connect with you? So you can visit our website at brokerspace.co.za. There's uh, links to you know booking meetings with us and our contact details. Um, you can also email me at glenda at brokerspace.co.za. Um, yeah, that's the easiest way. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with me. It sounds like it is a maze of different things to look at. Absolutely. And I know your attention to detail as well as being able to zoom out will be very valuable for any advisor to have a conversation with you. So thank you once again for being here. Thank you. It was a pleasure.